The second scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. If you'd like to follow along, it's on uh, uh, page 9 of the New Testament uh, section. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. In 2008, the first year of emergency shelter, I don't think it was called rest yet, I was chair of the Church and Society Committee and was out of town when the call went out for congregations to participate. At the time, it was not at all certain that there was going to be uh, a rest program or uh, shelter the following year. But when the invitation came in 2009, I do recall responding, and I recall how I felt while I was doing that. I was full of energy, full of enthusiasm, excitement, a sense that this is the right thing to do, that uh, we can do this, it's going to be just terrific. I recall volunteering us for Friday night, uh, offering Saturday night to St. Anselm's, and Wednesday night to St. John's all without consulting anybody or or talking with anybody at all. It turned out that Duncan Hall was already rented on Wednesday night, and I created a big pack of trouble for myself. But the point I want to make is that the way I was feeling, uh, that energy and enthusiasm and the sense of rightness uh, is the way a person feels when they're saying yes to a call. And it's important uh, to remember, to note, that during the entire time I was thinking about the congregation doing this, not, not myself. And when you add to that the energy with which the congregation responded, the energy and the enthusiasm, it seems very clear to me that our call to participate in rest was a call from God indeed. Now I want to return to last week's worship service and the long, embarrassing, standing ovation you gave to the three of us. I'd like you to try to remember the way you yourselves were feeling while you were doing that. Did you not also have a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction? Were you not also full of the feeling that we've done a good thing. Folks, that's the way we feel when we join in doing God's work in the world. In Joanne's KP column this month, she uses a quote that expresses the idea that little things can produce tremendous results. 
my experiences, and I believe those of many who uh, worked these Friday nights for the past few years, provide lots of evidence for, that support that idea. I've come to call these moments of beauty, and they uh, can occur in many, many, many ways. I experienced some, many actually, just in the welcoming process that was uh, Joanne's focus in her column. But the one I want to tell you about is, uh, is different. It was the next to the last week. I was prepared to uh, pour milk and juice, which is one of, one of my tasks. Most of the men were in line uh, to uh, pick up their food, but there was one man sitting at a table uh, by himself. He was a regular guest. Uh, I never had a conversation with him, and I perceived him as a person who was uh, uh, unhappy. I never saw him smile. I never saw him interact with anybody, actually. But uh, I knew he, he, uh, he drank his milk, and a lot of times, actually, he didn't have any food at all. He just drank milk. Well, he asked me to pour him a glass of milk, which I did. And after I did that, he said, you know, this is a precious time. No, I mean it. When I, when I get over this, and it doesn't look like I'm going to get over it very soon, I'm going to remember the times that you poured milk for me. And then he proceeded to say a little bit about himself, not a lot, but uh, I'm from the East Coast. Um, I don't like California, don't like the culture. I only I had to come out here to, I think, get some treatment for my son or something like that. So I'll tell you about it later. Well, it turns out that there was no later. Um, there were reasons why I couldn't speak with him anymore that evening. And the following week, the last week, he was not in a state that he wanted to talk. So I'm left with this beautiful sense of having created... Uh, a, a, um, a moment, uh, uh, a treasure, a special moment uh, for a man who was un grossly unhappy uh, and without a home. Um, I wonder if it's too idealistic for me to think of the, of the idea that all of the things that led up to that possibility were done by the congregation. So it is, is it unreasonable for me to say that the congregation created the precious, precious moment for this person through me? So now rest is over. I wonder what else God might be calling this congregation to do or to be. And I hope you wonder too. As I prepared these notes, I've been comforting myself with the knowledge that Royce and Joe would both be clear, eloquent, and spiritually meaningful. Thank you, Jesus. 
because it's hard for me to talk about serious things such as this without my voice cracking, and then I get all slobbery and I need to refer constantly to my notes, etc., etc. In other words, it can be not pretty. And so I hope you will forgive my occasional lapses into levity this morning. Trust me, it's in the best of our, both of our best interests. And in fact, you may think of me as the baloney in the sandwich of Royce and Joe. <laughs> Meanwhile, I will endeavor to share with you how a homeless shelter is like a church for me and how I learned that throughout each of the nine years we served in Duncan Hall. First, if I could, let me set the scene for how this church and my involvement with rest started and then what mine grew into. To be honest, the first year that I volunteered at Shelter, it was out of very personal, selfish desperation. I was suffering from serious depression. I was in my early 50s after some necessary back surgery. And so, mostly looking for something to distract me and to better fill my time and my brain, I wandered up Ross Avenue one night thinking that I would just peek into Duncan Hall and check out what participation in this rest program looked like. Many of you know that Joe and Royce were the ones who started up our participation in the program, but do you recall that we were initially serving three nights a week that first year? And that Joe was organizing our assignments on paper sign-up forms. In fact, just between you and me, at the end of that first year when I expressed amazement at the giant stacks of paper she had juggled, Joe laughed a bit hysterically <laughs> and then joked that she had both gained weight and started drinking during that season. <laughs> I knew then that she should be my mentor. <laughs> so as luck would have it, I had loved working in restaurants in the past, and this shelter gig immediately felt a little bit like that. I began to help Joe in any way and as often as I possibly could. In fact, I worried a little bit about being a pest. But it seemed that we had good chemistry. For instance, both of us wanted the silverware just so, and the various cloth napkins to be arranged like symmetrical color wheels. Okay, in fact, both, we pretty much both wanted everything to be symmetrical. So much fun was made of this that I quickly dubbed us napkin Nazis. <laughs> Seriously, though, what we both wanted was to create as close to a five-star restaurant experience for our guests as we could for just that couple of hours. Anyway, as I began to help, I began to hope. And more helping led to more hoping. Yes, I admit that at first it was a hope that the way I felt on shelter nights might spill over into the rest of my, at that time, unhappy life. However, rather quickly, as I began to meet more and more of our guests, what I call spirit began to work a change in me. And yes, I do suspect that Joe, Royce, and the other volunteers I began to know were working undercover on spirit's behalf as were many of our homeless guests. Okay, all of them, whether they knew it or not. Their very presence was a tribute to the human spirit in my eyes, and it changed me. I think I need to mention that I grew up unchurched in any normal sense of the word until this church where I stand. 
Christian life, functional or dysfunctional families, had never been shown to or instilled in me. And so a comfort zone with church going did not exist for me. And thus I was and am still sometimes not much of an active churchgoer. I'm a work in progress. But because of my increasing amazement at the fragility of life, that of our guests all day, every day of their lives on the streets. I found myself responding to the occasional well-intentioned questions about my spotty attendance at Sunday services by first thinking and then blurting out more than once that I go to church on Friday night. I was not being facetious. So here's the thing. I guess what I want to say is that there are many ways and many examples of how Friday nights in the rest program created for me what I now understand to be church. And that is a sense of intentional family. As the years passed and my responsibilities increased at shelter, I found that I really couldn't wait each week to see and share what was going on with my new extended homeless church family. So, spoiler alert, here comes that sappy, mushy part that I warned you about. For as much as you and I now worry when we lose track of a church friend, or when we don't lose track but simply know that they are going through a rough patch or even a disastrous, life-changing one, yes, just like that, I'm now worried, oh shoot, I'm now worried about Scotty who got positively teary-eyed at the thought that his necklaces were being carried by, forth by so many like me, and especially by the little innocent and positive spirits, his words, such as the Children for Change kids he gifted at Christmas. He's a generous, sensitive, and slightly fragile soul who avoids his own community a lot in order to maintain his sobriety. And I'm worried about David as he slips into early dementia with no family in sight to support him. I'm worried about Peter, who often, often offered to mop the kitchen for us at the end of a shelter evening, and who always helped with bussing tables, and then just didn't show up on the last Friday night of shelter. And I'm still worried about Dunny, who was born without legs and travels on a skateboard, and who disappeared again last year from shelter. I'm worried about Casey and Roger and Mike and Ed and Justin both Justins, and I worry about the anonymous men who we have watched slowly succumb ever more to alcoholism and drugs over the year. We could see their inevitable prognosis develop right in front of us as their color changed and their appetites and energy dissipated. So I'm calling out these names as well as anonymous concerns for your prayer lists. Yes, a prayer list. It's yet another Christian thing that I have personally implemented in my life and begun to work as a result of my attendance on Friday nights at the homeless church in Duncan Hall.
before, <clears throat> before I begin, I do wish to thank Joy and Royce for their constancy in the program. You know, it's one thing to build a bridge, like the Golden Gate Bridge or the Bay Bridge, but there's also how we wonder in maintaining the bridge. Joy and Royce and so many others maintained the program. Early in my work of developing soup kitchens and shelters, I recall saying that when we dream alone, it's only a dream. But when we dream together, it becomes a reality. And so it was with the shelter program. In the fall of 2009, the Duncan Hall kitchen was being painted, repaired. It was not in operation. I recall that we needed two weeks to be ready for the shelter program. And I can still see David Jones's white face when I said we need to have the dishwasher, dishwasher up and going in two weeks. Phyllis Angar, who's long gone now, said we don't have any silverware. We're short of glasses. I can't find anything. Shirley New, who was also part of all of that, said we could do it, and we did. We did. We also were asked to serve two nights, back to back, three nights, I guess it was the beginning. So the phone was busy because we didn't have access to the computer, or we didn't know how to run it, I didn't. But what was memorable, and the point I really want to make, was the magnificent response from the community. Because I had visited soup kitchens across the country, where I felt the poor were often mistreated, I admit to being intentional and determined not to serve the poor poorly. It was a mantra of mine, and along with nutritious foods, we suggested tablecloths and napkins and flowers on the table. It was a bit of a stretch, but we did it. I felt vindicated when one night one of the homeless men stood at the door of Duncan Hall. He looked in and he said, you know, I just want to stand a little straighter when I come here. Restoring dignity was one of our fundamental values at the shelter. The key to the program was the welcome table and the fellowship of eating together. The act of sharing food and conversation initiates a different dynamic than the usual soup kitchens where food is just dropped off. 
I used to say that if Jesus were to arrive in San Anselmo on a Friday or Saturday night, I was quite sure he would find us and he would eat with us and he would sleep on the floor with the men. It was a comfortable place and everyone was welcome. Let me tell you of the epiphany that turned me around, which illuminates my story and defines what I call the bread connection. Approximately 30 years ago, long time now, on the first Sunday of October, I attended worship at St. John the Divine in New York City. I was in New York for the purpose of viewing soup kitchens and shelter programs in preparation for the work I was asked to do in my home state of South Dakota. I planned to meet my team the following day, but on Worldwide Communion Sunday, I wanted to worship with my family. To our surprise, the Feast of St. Francis was also being observed, and along with a variety of people, it was a variety of animals. The cathedral was packed full of both. All kinds of animals, snakes and monkeys, and at the end a camel and an elephant walked down the center aisle. There was music and song and dance and incense. It was a wild and wonderful celebration. But what touched me, what really got me, was when the priest lifted up the bread for the Eucharist, and from the balcony there was a gigantic drum roll and a blast of trumpets. I thought only in New York could this happen. Then I thought, why not? This is the Lord's table. This is the feast. This is where we're reminded as to what he said and what he did. Do so in remembrance of me. He didn't say, fix it. He didn't say, consider it. He didn't say, think about it. Form a committee. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus called us and continues to call us to love in action. With this in mind, the next day, our group assembled and participated in a soup kitchen in Lower East Side of Manhattan. In two hours, 847 men came off the street and through the line to eat. I was asked to hand out bread as the men left the dining hall. As I held the bread box and noticed all those hundreds of hands reaching in, I heard those words from the day before. A trumpet sounded within me, and 
every heartbeat, the drums began to roll. I knew that through this breath, I was connected to the compassion of Jesus. This was the bread, and the bread given to me at the cathedral the day before, and this would be the bread that I would be giving in the programs, including the shelter at First Presbyterian San Anselmo. Through this bread connection, do so in remembrance of me, takes on a deeper meaning, especially as we serve poor and disadvantaged souls. The memory of lessons learned these past nine years will linger. Duncan Hall and the kitchen have received a permanent blessing, and so has our community. In that sacred space, we became aware that just because someone is poor, out of a job, disadvantaged, a bit tattered and torn, doesn't mean he's less of a person. And we also learned that impoverished people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And as we watch the children and the young people come and go, our hearts felt a ring of hope that the seeds of goodness and mercy were being planted. And as we worked together, we learned to pray with our hands and with our feet. Words were not as necessary to the homeless men as was our presence to them and their presence to us. It was mutual and it was holy. It was communion. So let the trumpets sound, the drums roll as we move on. And may our hearts be filled forever with gratitude for the privilege of the task we were given. Thank you.